You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of theology today by continuing to examine soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. We're currently discussing the doctrine of sanctification, and more specifically, the means of grace. Last week, we started looking at the responsibility of believers in making use of the means of grace. Dr. Spencer, what would you like to cover today? I first want to review something we covered before. The review will be preparation for finishing our discussion about the personal responsibility believers have for using the means of grace as we cooperate in the process of progressive sanctification. Okay, what do you want to review? I want to remind us all that the process of sanctification is a fight. We looked at Romans chapter 6 when we began our discussion of sanctification back in sessions 186 and 187. And in that chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul speaks of both definitive sanctification, that is, the fact that our being born again brings about real, tangible, instantaneous change, and progressive sanctification, which is a process in which we participate in fighting to put our remaining sinful nature to death and to grow in holiness. And we know that holiness is essential if we want to go to heaven. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, that, quote, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Yes, it is essential, because the new heaven and the new earth are the home of righteousness, as we're told in 2 Peter 3, verse 13. Therefore, if we are truly born-again Christians, and I should add that there is no other kind of Christian, then we are engaged in a battle to put our sin to death and to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. We see this, for example, in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, where we're told that our old self was crucified with Christ, quote, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. I remember that we noted before that this is the freedom that is ours as Christians. It is freedom from sin. Many Christians today would probably say that the freedom of a Christian is to be free from the requirements of the law. I think that's a common unbiblical view, yes. In other words, to put it in a way that very few would like, although it's accurate, many modern professing Christians seem to think that we are free to sin without consequences. But the biblical teaching is very different. We have been set free from sin. We died to sin, as Paul wrote which is the definitive aspect of sanctification. But we still have work to do because God has not yet removed our old sinful nature. He has given us power to rule over it, but he has not removed it. Which is why Paul also commands us in Romans chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, quote, Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. And when we considered that verse earlier, it led us into a discussion of what it means to be under grace. 
in session 190, we made the point that grace is real power from God to enable us to put our sin to death and to walk in holiness. Yeah, and back in session 186, we quoted the Reverend P.G. Matthew, who wrote that, quote, holiness is the key to happiness, unquote. When God calls us to be holy, he isn't telling us to do something that will make us miserable in this life while we wait for some later reward. He is telling us to do that which will lead to the greatest joy we can experience in this life. Now, the idea that the greater reward comes later is obviously true, but nevertheless, even in this life, obedience to God's commands is not a burden, it is a blessing. That's not the way many people view it. Even many professing Christians seem to think that God's commands prevent us from having many joys in this life. And the reality is that there is some momentary pleasure in certain sinful behaviors. That's why people are tempted to sin. No normal person is tempted to do something because it's painful. But the reality is that all sinful behaviors lead to major problems in this life. They are painful. Only the pain comes later, after the momentary pleasure is long gone. Just think about the consequences of eating too much, or drinking too much, or being lazy, or committing adultery. Yeah, I'd rather not think about them. They all lead to unpleasant consequences. Which is precisely my point. The greatest joy in this life is obtained when we abstain from sinful behaviors. They are simply not good for us. That's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, quote, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now that's strong language. Our sinful desires war against our souls. It is strong language, but it's also accurate. We are made for eternity, not just for this short life. There are some activities in this life that can bring momentary pleasure, but which produce pain in the end and eternally. God wants us to avoid these things. He wants us to be holy. But again, being holy leads to the greatest happiness. Christians need to see that connection. And we need to see that we are truly in a war. We have real, powerful enemies, often summarized as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're told in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, that, quote, We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one, which is obviously speaking about the devil. That's true. And our old sinful nature also used to be under the control of the devil. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, quote, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, So our enemy is, first and foremost, the devil. He rules in this world among those who have not been born again, and he was the tempter who caused our first parents to sin, which then led to our inheriting a sinful nature. And each one of us was under his control prior to our conversion. Although the devil always tries to make people think they are, in fact, autonomous. I've never met a person who would admit to being under the control of the devil. (laughs) Nor have I. He's very successful in hiding his rule. But he is a real enemy, and the process of progressive sanctification involves fighting against him and the vestiges of his rule. 
It is spiritual warfare, and it is a daily reality for all who have been born again and adopted into the family of God. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that, quote, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Yeah, that verse is very clear. There are spiritual forces at work in this world to oppose Christians. Yes, there are. And now that we have been reminded of this spiritual warfare, let's get back to the means of grace and our responsibility to properly make use of them. The means of grace are given to us by God to help us in this fight. First and foremost, each believer is given the Holy Spirit to help us fight our individual battle. And the Holy Spirit is powerful. He is extremely powerful. Back in session 190, I quoted Louis Burkhoff, who wrote that the most common meaning of the word grace is that it, quote, signifies the unmerited operation of God in the heart of man, affected through the agency of the Holy Spirit. It is, in reality, the active communication of divine blessings by the inworking of the Holy Spirit. Notice that grace is a work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit must be at work in every means of grace for it to be effective in helping us win our battle. And we are guaranteed victory. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22, quote, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That is a wonderful promise. Although we clearly must work, it is ultimately God who makes us stand firm in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is a marvelous guarantee. He is able to strengthen and guide us to victory. In fact, the victory has already been won by Jesus Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit in applying that victory to individual believers is a particular emphasis of chapter 8 of the book of Romans. It would take a tremendous amount of time to go through the chapter in any detail, and I refer interested listeners to the Reverend P.G. Matthews' exposition of the chapter. But for right now, I just want to make a few comments which are particularly germane to our discussion of the means of grace and sanctification. Well, let me point out that the chapter begins with the great declaration in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that, quote, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, and Matthew says of that verse, quote, God has pardoned all our sins, clothed us with Christ's divine righteousness, and given us the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life of victory. Through regeneration, God has given us divine nature. With God, we can fight and defeat Satan, sin, and the world, unquote. Note that there are two things going on here. First, God clothes us with the righteousness of Christ and pardons us. The guilt of our sin is taken away. And then secondly, God gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. Through regeneration, which brings about a real tangible change, as we have noted, we are given real power to defeat our enemies. All I can say to that is praise God for his incredible mercy. Yeah, praise God indeed. And now I want to look in particular at the last part of verse 3 and then verse 4 of Romans chapter 8. Paul wrote that God, quote, condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit, unquote. 
John Murray presents a lengthy argument to support his conclusion that when it says God condemned sin in sinful man, it, quote, refers to the judicial judgment which was executed upon the power of sin in the cross of Christ. God executed this judgment and overthrew the power of sin. That's interesting that Murray refers specifically to the power of sin. It is very important. Remember when we looked at Romans chapter 6, we saw that Paul argued that the natural man is a slave of sin. He has no power to overcome sin. And we already quoted Romans chapter 6 verse 6 earlier, where Paul speaks about our union with Christ, specifically referring to his crucifixion. He wrote, quote, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, unquote. This is the same idea we just saw in Romans chapter 8. The enslaving power of sin has been broken. Christ's work on the cross broke the power of sin for those who are united to him by faith. This statement is not just symbolic. The Holy Spirit works a real change in the hearts of believers. The power of sin is broken. And that is why Paul wrote what I just read from Romans chapter 8, verse 4, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. In other words, we are free to not sin, but to keep God's law instead, as we noted earlier. Precisely. And the point I want to focus on now is that we are enabled to do this because we do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. John Frame has the same understanding of this verse in Romans 8. He wrote that, quote, the gracious work of the Spirit enables us to keep the righteous requirements of the law, unquote. And so let me now tie this back into our discussion about our responsibility in making use of the means of grace as we cooperate in our progressive sanctification. Yes, please do. The Holy Spirit is given to every true believer, but the Holy Spirit is not to be taken for granted and is not given in equal measure to everyone or at all times. Can you back those statements up with Scripture? Absolutely. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is admonishing his readers to put away all of their old sinful habits and to walk in holiness. And in the midst of this, he tells them in Ephesians 4 verse 30, quote, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, unquote. Now clearly, if we can grieve the Holy Spirit, we should not take his working in us for granted. The Holy Spirit is not some power given to us to use. He is the third person of the Holy Trinity. He is God, and he works in us to make us holy. He is sometimes referred to as the resident boss. We should cooperate with him, but we are also capable of grieving him. Which is something we should all be very careful to avoid doing. Yes, we should. And the fact that the Holy Spirit is not given to everyone in equal measure is seen from the fact that we read in a number of places about people being filled with the Holy Spirit, which implies some greater presence than normal. Also, Jesus exhorted us to ask for the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 11, verse 13, he said, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the Holy Spirit works in us, but there is a sense in which our greater cooperation, submission to the will of God, and desire for greater godliness will lead to his being even more active in our lives. 
Yeah, in fact, in Acts chapter 5, verse 32, the apostles were speaking of the Sanhedrin about all that Christ had done, and they said, quote, We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him, unquote, which clearly ties our receiving the Holy Spirit to our obedience and strongly implies that we will have more of the Holy Spirit's influence if our obedience is greater. Also in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, we read that, quote, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, unquote. Now, it's obvious that different Christians do not possess these qualities in equal measure, nor in equal amounts at all times. So we can deduce that our cooperation with the Holy Spirit affects how the Holy Spirit works in us. Yeah, that does seem like a reasonable conclusion. And therefore, one responsibility of every Christian is to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to enable us to make use of the means of grace, and to have the necessary power to put our sin to death, and to walk in greater and greater holiness. We must fight the good fight. If someone claims to be a Christian, but is basically satisfied with his or her life and doesn't see any real need for change, I would have serious doubts about the person's Christianity. And so would I. Is there anything more you'd like to say about our personal responsibility with regard to sanctification? Yes. In Philippians 2, verse 12, Paul commands us to, quote, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, unquote. Way back in January, right after we started looking at the topic of sanctification, we received a question from one of our listeners, and I want to conclude our discussion of sanctification by answering that question. I sent a brief reply in answer to the listener at the time, but the question deserves a more thorough treatment. The listener asked, How do we fight against our sinful nature since God did not remove it completely? And how can I overcome the sinful nature? Yeah, that is a great question. I agree. And so in our session next week, I'd like to provide a more detailed answer. Well, I look forward to that. And now let me remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org. And we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media. And I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine the doctrine of sanctification, and we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.